This is Barry Zelma, Zelma on Insurance, Part 2 of The Law of Unintended Consequences and the Tort of Bad Faith. After the creation of the tort of bad faith, if an insurer and insured disagreed on the application of the policy to the factual situation, damages were no longer limited to contract damages as in any other commercial relationship. If the court found that the insurer was wrong, it could be required to pay the contract amount and damages for emotional distress, pain, suffering, punishment damages, attorney's fees, and any other damages the insured and the court considered appropriate. It was hoped by the enactment of the tort of bad faith to have a salutary effect on the insurance industry and in, and force insurers to treat their insureds fairly, assuming, of course, that they had never done so in the past. However, when insignificant claims deemed wrongfully denied resulted in $5 million verdicts, on a $40 claim. Fairness found a new definition. Juries, unaware of the reasons for an operation of insurance, decided that insurers that did not pay, pay claims were evil and punished them, often feeling sorry for the insureds. This happened even when the insurer's conduct was correct and proper under the terms of its insurance contract. The massive judgments were publicized, and many insurers decided fighting insureds in court was too risky and expensive. If an insured sued for bad faith, regardless of how correct the position of the insurer on the contract, the insurer would often choose to pay to settle. Most of the massive verdicts were reversed or reduced on appeal. The bad actors raised their premium and lost little business. Other insurers faced with the massive verdicts allowed fear to control reason and paid claims that were improper or fraudulent. The extra cost was passed on to all insurance consumers, not to the insurers who acted improperly. The bad actors, in fact, profited. They continued their wrongful acts and paid the few insureds that sued. Honest and professional insurers paid fraud perpetrators and paid claims the policy never intended to cover for fear of being painted with the same brush as the bad actors. Those who exercised good faith were punished and those who dealt with insureds in bad faith profited. The tort of bad faith, designed to help the innocent, resulted in punishing the honest and professional insurers, rewarding the insurers who acted in bad faith with profit. Also, because of the fear of punishment with bad faith suits, insurers allowed many frauds to succeed rather than face potential tort damages. Contract terms and conditions that were clear and unambiguous were ignored 
to avoid litigation. In the more than 60 years of application across the United States, the tort of bad faith has not, in my opinion, had a salutary effect on the insurance business or on the people and businesses who are insured. Insurance costs more than is reasonable or necessary so that sufficient funds exist to pay claims and tort damages from those insured who believe they were wronged. For example, suits relating to claims for the 1994 Northridge earthquake in California are still pending. Seeking tort and punitive damages for failure to pay what the insureds believe they were owed. In Louisiana and Mississippi, multiple millions were paid to settle claims that flood damage was covered as a result of Hurricane Katrina, although the policies excluded flood and the plaintiff insureds failed to buy flood insurance. Mudslides in Southern California from hills denuded by wildfires clearly excluded are being paid because of fear of claims of bad faith and an aggressive Department of Insurance that said the mud flow was really caused by the fire. The tort of bad faith is like the mythical vampire. It hides in the dark. The law of unintended consequences applies to the situation and the reasons for its creation. Bad acts by insurers costing innocent insureds to suffer was not cured by the tort of bad faith. Rather, insurers and their customers were hurt by the fear of the assessment of tort and punitive damages, increased the cost of insurance across the country to those who had no reason to believe their insurers were not paying their claims as promised. In fact, more than 95% of all claims are paid to the satisfaction of those insured. The truth about the tort of bad faith is that it will die only if it is put into the light of day. It does not solve the problem anticipated. The tort of bad faith makes a few lawyers very rich, a few insureds receive indemnity for which they did not bargain, nor did they pay a premium, and makes the cost of insurance prohibitive to those who seek only to receive the benefits of the contract. If the courts of the United States still believe, regardless of the evidence now available, that the existence of the tort is a good thing, and helps to deter insurers from mistreating their insureds, they must limit the use and abuse of the tort of bad faith. Insurance departments have statutory authority to punish insurers that act improperly. They do not need a tort action to add to those rights. Policyholders and their lawyers rely heavily on bad faith claims in coverage litigation to not only get the insurer's attention, but to press for favorable settlements due to the risk of high jury awards if the bad faith claim gets that far in litigation. 
Bad faith lawsuits are traditionally not interested in whether the claim made by the insured was one claimed by the insured and available under the coverages, but rather an attempt to profit from a claim, a purpose anathema to the purpose of insurance, to provide indemnity for losses. There is no doubt that allegations that an insurer acted in bad faith gets an insurer's attention. However, if the insured can go further and specifically seek punitive damages, they can get in the driver's seat of coverage litigation and change the issue from interpretation of the contract to whether, regardless of coverage, the insurer acted badly and should be punished. It seems clear to me that the tort of bad faith has served its purpose. It should be killed. A stake should be pounded into the heart of the tort, since it is not really a tort but a breach of contract gone wild. The courts of the United States should return to the common law of contracts, where the insured is provided the benefits of the contract of insurance promised by the policy. In the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the insurance industry actually did abuse some insureds to avoid paying legitimate claims. Without a factual basis, insureds were accused of arson or other variations on insurance fraud. Indemnity payments were refused on the flimsiest of excuses. People were found to have diseases that only a horse could catch. Disability payments were refused because an insured was wheeled in her wheelchair to church one day and was therefore not totally house-confined. Insureds were driven into bankruptcy when reasonable demands within policy limits were refused. To stop this abuse, the courts of the state of California invented a tort of bad faith breach of insurance contract. Many other states have followed the lead, until the invention of the tort of bad faith, all that an insured could collect from an insurer that wrongfully denied a claim were the benefits due under the policy. In the tort of bad faith, the courts allowed the insured to collect, in addition, the entire panoply of tort damages, including punitive damages. It worked. Insurers treated their insureds better. The threat of punitive damages made insurers wary of rejecting any claim. The creation of the tort of bad faith was in many ways a good thing for insurers and insureds. What the courts created, the tort of bad faith did not recognize, was that it was also a key to Pandora's box. The law of unintended consequences came into play, and lawyers began to take advantage of the new tort. The law can be defined as understanding that actions of people, and especially government or the courts, always have effects that are unanticipated or unintended. Insurance is controlled by the courts through appellate decisions and by governmental agencies through statutes and regulations. Compliance with appellate decisions, statutes, regulations differ in various states 
ex exceedingly difficult and very expensive. As Justice Kaus of the California Supreme Court noted back in 1985, quote, the problem is not so much the theory of the bad faith cases as its application. It seems to me that attorneys who handle policy claims against insurance companies are no longer interested in collecting on those claims, but spend their wits and energies trying to maneuver the insurers into committing acts which the insureds can later trot out as evidence of bad faith. Close quote. This was a decision in White versus Western Title, California Supreme Court. The decision was rendered on the last day. Three of the justice and the chief justice were forced to leave the court by a vote of the public. Some speculate that spite against those who helped them lose an election was the reason for the decision. As a result of the White v. Western title case, litigation and settlement in California became more difficult. An insurer could be held responsible for litigation taxes it found necessary to defeat a wrongful bad faith case against the insurer. The case allowed evidence of settlement negotiations, usually protected, to be admitted to help prove the insurer acted in bad faith. The White v. Western title decision that allowed such evidence in a bad faith case has been criticized as unfairly compromising a defendant's right to defend himself, but it is still the law of the state of California. When an insurer is sued, it could be charged with bad faith for taking what the plaintiff in a court felt were too many depositions, unsuccessful motions for summary judgment, or failing to offer an appropriate amount of the settlement. It became essential as a result of White versus Western title, to have all parties waive the holding of the Supreme Court before settlement negotiations began. Insurers began the practice of what is known as the White Waiver for settlement negotiations. 